my name is Barry Avey. I'm the CEO of Blessings International. We do, um, we provide medicines for missions. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about ethics. So I have had the opportunity to teach an ethics course um, a few different times for a, a university system as well as um, teach a little section on ethics with um, healthcare law. Because I'm also, I'm a pharmacist and an attorney. Um, and so I know there's not a lot of, the suggestion there's not a lot of ethics with attorneys. Um, but, um, I don't practice law anymore, so hopefully I'm, I'm back on the ethical side of things a little bit more. Um, so what we're going to talk about, so first, um, that my work with Blessings is the only disclosure that I have. Um, so the learning objectives for today are going to be to understand healthcare ethics theory and principles. So that's something we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about several different ethical theories um, as we go through this. And so part of my goal in this is, is not to tell you um, that something is ethical or is not ethical. So if you came here and hoped that I would tell you, well, this is going to be an ethical way to do something and this is going to be a different way, that's not something I can do because, as you'll see as we go through this, and, and you may know this from being out in the field, every fact situation is different. It's kind of like when I practice law. You know, a car wreck is not going to be the same every single time. There's different facts that are involved. And when there's different facts involved, there's different outcomes. So, you know, same way with ethical situations. If you're practicing in Haiti and you have a, a situation, that almost same situation in Colombia is going to be different. Um, there's a different uh, culture there. There's different people that you're working with. So what we're going to focus more on is trying to go through just how to resolve ethical issues. So the theories that are involved, some steps to do it, and then we're going to do, I'm going to actually do a couple of them, and then I'm going to get you guys to help me on, on one or two, depending on what our time is. So we're going to walk through it that way, and hopefully um, that will help, because my goal is to help you all when you're in the field and you face an ethical situation, how do you work through that? Because, again, I, I can't tell you what to do in that situation, because you know what one person does is going to be completely different from somebody else. So... So that's how we'll walk through the, the next time together. So understanding ethical decision-making and then discuss some specific, uh, specific ethical considerations regarding short-term medical missions. So what is ethics and what is it not? So those are two different things, certainly. So ethics is a conception of right and wrong. Um, so there's, you know, what's right for me, though, in a situation may not be right for you. And that's where, especially when I'm working with the students when I'm teaching ethics, I really want them to know is that, you know, in a given situation, my moral code may be different than someone else's moral code. So what I say is right may not be right for you. So that's why we have all these different ethical theories that we're going to talk about. Is, is Even with the ethical theories, you have to utilize many of those in combination together because one ethical theory is going to give you a different answer than another ethical theory. So it's really, it's, it's piecing all of it together in the end. So ethics is a consideration of whether something is fair and just. So a conception of right and wrong and uh, a consideration of fair and just. It's an indication of whether our behavior is moral or immoral. Again, one person is going to say something is moral while someone else may say it's completely immoral. And I think we see a lot of that in the U.S. right now. You know, our, our moral code is shifting, um, at least in my opinion. We're seeing a shifting of, of morals. And so what would have been considered moral or immoral in the 1950s, may be very normal today. I and mean, if you watch much TV, you'll see some of the things that come out just on regular TV and some of the language that's used just on regular network TV that would have been considered extremely immoral back in the 1950s, but today it's just commonplace. Ethics is also how we think and behave toward others and want them to think and behave toward us. Um, normative ethics is the study of what's right and wrong. Uh, when normative ethics seeks to determine um, right and wrong answers, we can have differing opinions. And so that's, again, what we're going to talk about is some of these ethical theories and, and how we get differing opinions, but we put them together to come up with an answer in the end. What, if, what ethics is not is an opinion. And I say that because I, I have actually had people tell me before, and they don't know me very well, I guess, but they say, man, you're really an really ethical guy. But they don't know me. They like my opinion. They liked what I thought at that moment. But they didn't know anything about me, really. And so I just want to be sure that we know that ethics isn't an opinion. There's a, a way that you work through ethical considerations, and you, you arrive um, at, an, at an answer. Okay, so the first ethical theory that we're going to talk about is called deontology. So deontology is 
the theory um, is concerned with behaving ethically by meeting our duties. Um, and so we have different duties that we can deal with um, depending on where we're at. So some of those uh, include things like civil, civil rights, um, duties of women's rights, fetal rights. Uh, there can also be um, privacy rights. You know, again, our society and, and the way we look at things is shifting because there's a lot more people demanding rights now than what I probably ever remember in the past. You know, people, on college campuses especially, the, the rights that people demand are shifting. So what we want to focus on rights, what we want to focus on are those rights that have been established throughout um, most of civilization. Again, women's rights, um, civil rights, <clears throat> um, religious affiliation rights. Those kind of rights are what we're thinking of when we think of, of deontology. Um, deontology is also um, duties of respect owed to persons to ensure that individual personal rights will not be violated. So we want to be sure that, that if there's an issue with religious affiliation rights, that those rights aren't violated. Again, this is, this is the duty that's owed to someone when we're looking at this. Um, deontology is also the ter- determination of right or wrong, and that's based upon fulfilling those duties, and it's separate from the result um, that's desired. So the point with that is, is that if we have a desired result, if you want to see a certain kind of outcome, you don't want to fit the duty that's owed into that outcome. You have to look at what the duty is, and then the outcome will follow. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there, there's, an, there's an end result to the duty that's owed, and that's what we have to look at, not what, okay, this is what I really want to see happen out of this event. And then, um, lastly, people act to obtain some rights and privileges in exchange with others um, with the use of uh, People act to obtain some rights and privileges in exchange with others without the use of coercion. So basically with this theory, uh, we have a duty to one another to protect each other's rights. And um, this may be uh, more that we give up. So in some situations, we're going to have to give or give up some of our own rights so that someone else's rights are protected. So there's a give and take with that. And that the end result, the, the goal is, is that all of society is benefited from that, or at least all of the, the the stakeholders in that situation are benefited from that result. So that's, that's deontology. So the next we're going to talk about virtue ethics. So there's four different virtue ethics, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. So this first one, autonomy, is the ability to decide for oneself. So in the healthcare, what we would compare this to is someone, if, if a patient came in and we were to... Um, get them involved in their own decision-making. So that would provide autonomy for that patient. So consent and informed decision-making is what we would see with autonomy. Paternalism, if you've heard that term, is really just the opposite. That's when we're going to make a decision on someone else's behalf without their involvement. You know, we do that as parents all the time. We decide for our kids what's good for them, what's bad for them. We do, you know, we can see this in the healthcare world, um, and I think especially with missions, there's an opportunity to see this kind of thing. If you go into an area where maybe the language isn't spoken well and you don't have a good translator or there's some cultural differentiations, you may walk in as a healthcare provider and want to give a treatment or do a procedure and you try to tell them about it, but it's not truly an informed consent. They don't really understand what it is that you're doing or they don't understand the medicine that you're giving them and then they nod okay and move ahead, or you don't even get the okay and you move ahead, that would be paternalism because you're not giving them the opportunity to really have an informed decision. Beneficence is uh, to do well or to do good. Uh, with beneficence, we want there to be some sort of, um, of benefit in the end. So there actually has to be a benefit with beneficence. Non-maleficence is kind of just the opposite, not to do wrong. If you're familiar with the Hippocratic Oath, which many of you probably are, first do no harm. So that would be non-maleficence. So if you think about beneficence and non-maleficence, which of those, if you had just a neutral result, which of those two would be violated? Beneficence would be violated? Yeah. Yeah, because you actually have to have a positive result with beneficence, even if it's marginal. You want a positive result of some sort. 
Non-maleficence, on the other hand, you can just be neutral with that because the goal is to not do harm. So if you're just neutral, you're not doing any harm. Now, some, some would argue in the, the ethics world that in some situations just doing nothing is actually harmful. But So it, it is situation-dependent, but for the most part, doing, uh, just having a neutral result would not do harm. And so um, in that situation, um, that's what we would be looking at. The fourth um, ethical theory, which is a virtue ethic, ethic is um, justice. So justice is more than just fair. So we might think of, of justice being served. It's fair justice, but it's really a little more than that. It's also what's lawful, what's reasonable, um, what's correct, and what's honest. So all of those are involved with, um, with justice. There's two different types of justice. There's what we call distributive justice, which determines the proper sharing of property and the burdens and benefits. So with distributive justice, what you think is, is if I have five apples, you know, I want, to be sh- I want to be fair and I want to share all those apples with everyone. You know, I need to cut up the apples and share it with everyone in the room. That would be distributive justice. Where we see this come into play in the missions world is, let's say you have, uh, you have three people that have malaria, and you have one dose of malaria that will be curative. Now you have to deal with distributive justice. Which one of the three get that dose? You know, again, I can't tell you which one of the three because it's going to be very dependent on who the three are, what value they're going to add to society long term, what value they add now. There's a lot of different things that would play into that. But somehow you've got to figure out who gets that one dose. If you, um, if you do what's fair and you give everybody, you know, each of the three part of the dose, you've really not done good, right? Because none of the three of them are actually going to be cured in the end. So that's why how you look at distributive justice. Procedural justice determines the proper application of rules uh, in the hearing of a case. So we see a lot of this in the legal world. You know, you would expect if you go through a legal case that the procedures are going to be fair for everyone that's involved. So if I'm on the plaintiff's side, I would expect the judge to be just as fair with me in his rulings as the people who are on the defense side. Now, if you keep up with politics much, you know, on Capitol Hill right now, I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on, on Capitol Hill, we don't have a lot of procedural justice right now. The, the rules are constantly shifting depending on which side you're on and which, whether it's the Senate that's having the hearings or it's the House that's having the hearings. The procedural justice shifts quite a bit, actually. So, um, but that's procedural justice and, and kind of how it works. There's another uh, ethical theory, which I didn't put up here. I'm just going to mention it real briefly because I don't think it plays into, uh, into missions much and certainly not into some of the examples we'll talk about uh, later, but it's called egoism. And egoism basically means that people either will or likely will look out for themselves in the end. So if I am a healthcare provider, the ultimate goal that I have in providing care is to gain some sort of power or wealth or something good for me so it fills my ego. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up, and but I didn't include it, I think there is a small chance of that because there are some people in the healthcare, whether it's in the private sector or out on missions, that really want to do something for their own benefit, and they're really not as interested in the person that they're serving. Um, again, I think it's very small, but, um, but it's just another ethical theory that, um, that is out there. All right, next we're going to talk about a theory called consequentialism. So consequentialism is the morality of action is evaluated in terms of the progress toward a goal or an end, and the consequences of the action are, not, are what matter but not the intent. So essentially with consequentialism, what we're looking at is the ultimate outcome. So what's the end result? How we get there doesn't really matter. It's more of what the end result is. Have you, have you heard the term... Um, it's, it's the, the means to the end. So if you do something well, it's just the means to an end. So how you get there doesn't matter. It can be completely immoral, but the end result is what we're worried about. So you can take five steps through that, that you know, are illegal, immoral, whatever it is, as long as the end result is what, is, uh, what you want. So the goal is often considered to be the greatest good for the greatest number. So when we look at stakeholders, and we'll talk about stakeholders, so there's two types of stakeholders that we typically look at primary, which are those who are directly involved, and then secondary, which are those who are somehow impacted but to a much lesser extent. So a community 
if you're serving as a missionary and you're serving the patient, you and the patient would be the primary stakeholders because you're the two involved. The community would be a secondary stakeholder. So the goal is often considered to be the greatest good for the greatest number. So you, with consequentialism, you may want to look at what's going to happen with the community in this relationship, if that makes sense, because it's the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, it's, uh, consequentialism is similar to another theory called utilitarianism, which focuses on the maximum maximization of the net utility expected for all affected. So it's very similar, um, and I'm not going to get into the, the specifics on how it's different, but if you've ever heard of utilitarianism um, as a theory, it's very similar to consequentialism. Um, so consequentialism is a little different than deontology and virtue ethics, again, because the intent of the actor isn't really considered. In both deontology and uh, autonomy as well as the others, somewhat the intent of, if I'm the healthcare provider, my intent is considered in what I'm doing, whereas consequentialism is, it's just the end result. Um, what, what happens in between doesn't really matter. All right, so some of the strengths of consequentialism is um, that it forces thinkers or forces thinking about the general welfare and stakeholders. So all the stakeholders that are involved, we have to think about them. So it can't just be um, that, that you're focusing solely on one person. Another strength is that it allows personal decisions to fit in to the situation, situational complexities. So if I have my own personal outcome that I want to see, I can fit that into the situation. Because it's the outcome that matters, not how we get there. So if I want the end result to be A, I can do B, C, and D along the way, and that doesn't really matter. Some of the weaknesses, though, of consequentialism is it ignores actions that may be inherently wrong. So if B, C, and D are really bad things, it ignores them um, because, again, we're looking at the end result. And then it may come into the conflict with uh, the theory of justice uh, because with justice, again, we're looking back to what is right and what is um, uh, legal and somewhat what is fair, yeah. So that, those are, are some of the weaknesses. All right, so this, when I was um, researching doing this talk, I looked at, uh, tried to look at about as much as I could on articles and other things that were published about ethics in short-term missions. And what I found was that there are some writers who are really for um, medical missions, and there are some that are absolutely against medical missions and ha think really medical missions doesn't play a, a big part in what we should be doing as a society. So this um, list comes from uh, the article, More Harm Than Good, The Questionable Ethics of Medical Volunteering and International Student Placements. So all of these, as well as many more, I just selected a few of them out, all of these different issues all came out of one article. And so this writer felt like those who go out and serve in medical missions are potentially violating almost all of these things, or certainly you know, medical missions in general has the ability to violate all of these things. So just kind of reading through them, setting up ad hoc clinics, you know, so going out and just kind of a pop-up clinic, um, assuming Western medicine is superior, working outside of or beyond the scope of practice. And so we, we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, if you're a, a doctor that uh, ear, nose, and throat, but you uh, go out and do some bone and joint work, you know, practicing outside of the scope of your practice. Not working within an ethical code. Lack of follow-up. So short-term team goes out, they treat a patient, and then you know, what happens for the next two to three months after that. Um, lack of patient records for follow-up. So fairly similar. Focus on quantity rather than quality. You know, if you've heard of, of the mission teams that go out and they come back in and say, we, we treated 3,000 people this week. You know, you're, you're focused on how many are being treated rather than the, the, um, you know, the quality for maybe treating 300 that you treated really well. Um, now, I'm not saying I agree with all these. These are just some things. So if you're thinking about ethics, to me, this was kind of where to start. If I'm thinking about ethical concerns that could be raised in healthcare missions, this is kind of, this was a good starting point, I think. Uh, lack of informed consent. So we talked about that a little bit with that patient autonomy. Practicing outside the national authoritative body. So if you've got um, the national licensing and you, you go in and you're not getting any approvals from them to go in. 
for-profit mission placement organizations. So there's organizations that are for-profit that will place people. So you pay your fee, and they're making a profit off of that. So this um, writer felt that that was really probably not ethically the best idea. Not addressing root health care problems. So you may go in and you treat the patient uh, that has worms um, or intestinal worms, but are you doing the other things that help? Now, you know, there's, there's argument on both sides of that. Do you treat them and then take care of the problem, or do you, make, you, know, do you have to take care of the problem and then treat the patient? You know, certainly I think there's a, a level of compassion that you need to treat the patient, uh, but then are you also working towards uh, the end result uh, of taking care of that root problem? Competing with local practitioners. You know, so if there's already a healthcare system established where you're going and you go in as, as an outsider, are you competing with that group? Uh, getting rid of unwanted stuff. Um, you know, how many of that, that junk for Jesus? You know, are we giving them the stuff that we, that's not good enough for us? And I think my personal view is they should be getting in-date medicine and they should be getting the stuff that we, that's still good so that they can utilize it just because um, just because it's something doesn't mean that it's necessarily good. Uh, using medication labels not in the language spoken. So you hand out the medicine, and it's in English, but they speak Burmese. You know, how much good is that going to do for them? You know, so those, those are some, some issues um, that were raised as concerns, uh, as well as others, in short-term missions. So for the next little bit, we're going to talk about how to evaluate ethical concerns. So if you have an ethical problem, kind of what's the step process that you would go through to then arrive at your ethical decision and, and to determine what it is that you want to do? So first, identify the stakeholders. Again, there's going to be primary stakeholders and there's going to be secondary stakeholders. And the goal in, um, in identifying them is to know what level they're at because the primary stakeholders are going to have a more significant part in your evaluation than a secondary stakeholder. But secondary stakeholders are important and should, should be involved. What virtues are there with the ethics issues? So, again, is there autonomy, um, beneficence, non-maleficence? What, what are involved in that? What are possible courses of action? Every situation is going to have more than one possible outcome. And so you need to think through that. What are the different options? So, essentially, what are the options that I have? Is an option – and not doing anything is always an option – um, so, you know, what, what are the options? And then I'm gonna, we're going to look at the benefits and harms of each of those options. Because if you don't do the risk-benefit analysis, you're not going to be able to come out at a good decision either. Um, which course of action will uh, lead to the best overall consequences? So we talked about that with consequentialism. We talked about that um, with a couple of others. So what's, what's going to be the overall benefit that we're looking at? Are there any moral rights or duties to the stakeholders, and how are those affected? So if we're looking at, um, at that justice and um, making sure that, uh, that the rights are um, of, of the patients that we're evaluating those, how, how do those come out? Uh, if there's no rights, then you don't have to worry about that. But in most situations, there will be some right of some sort, um, so that you make sure that you're including that. Uh, which course of action treats all stakeholders equally unless there's a morally justifiable reason not to? It's going to be pretty rare that all courses of action are going to treat all stakeholders equally. There's going to be somebody that's going to be, a, you know, on one side, and somebody else is going to get more of a benefit. So there, but when that happens, and when a decision is made, there should be some uh, morally justifiable reason to do that. So don't do it just because it's convenient. That's not a morally justifiable reason. You want to have some reason to do that. And then once all those, once that process is done and you've come to a decision because you're whittling these things down as you go along, take action and then move forward with uh, what, you, what you decided. All decisions must take into account and reflect um, a concern for the interests and well-being of all affected stakeholders. So, again, not all stakeholders are going to be affected equally, um, but, all, but the stakeholders should all be considered in the evaluation. Ethical values and principles always take precedence over non-ethical ones. So if you've got two situations, two possible outcomes, you want to look at what the ethical outcome is going to be and, and choose an ethical outcome over a non-ethical outcome, if at all possible. Uh, it is ethically appropriate to violate an ethical principle only when it is clearly necessary to advance another uh, true ethical principle, which 
when according to the decision maker's conscience will produce the greatest balance of good in the long run. So again, we're looking we're looking at the good in the long run. Um, something we haven't talked about but is very important is your, your conscience and how you feel about things. But how you feel about it isn't always the end outcome because you may um, you may decide that something has to be done that you're not comfortable with. Sometimes uh, that's called moral distress. Have you heard that term before? Yeah, so moral distress is, is having an ethical situation that is, is different than what you would like it to be, um, but you still have to deal with it. And there's times that missionaries come back from the field and they have to deal with moral distress. Uh, but that's, that's something that we have to be aware of and be prepared to deal with. Okay, so the, the considerations I've given you to this point are all, I would say, fairly scholarly. Um, so I'm, this is my disclaimer before I change the slide. Uh, this one isn't quite as scholarly, but I do think that this um, that that if you evaluate it this way, you'll come to a fairly good decision most times. So you're familiar with WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? So the reason, and and I will say, if somebody disagrees with what I go through, this is my own creation, so forgive me. Um, but when I thought about Jesus, because Jesus was definitely in a health and healing ministry. I mean, I think we'd all agree with that, right? He did a lot of healings. And when you look at his healings primarily and his interactions, there's three things that he does. Compassion, others focused, and he does some sort of teaching. So compassion first, um, he doesn't lecture people. When he he goes to, to, to do a healing or to interact, first he just has compassion. He just heals. I don't know of, of many um, situations in the Bible. Someone, it's a Bible scholar, will, will prove me wrong, so forgive me. But most of the time, he just heals. And then he moves on to others. He, he doesn't want a focus on him. He's not in it for, he, Jesus did not have egoism. He wasn't in it for others to know how great he was. He just wanted to do the healing. And then last, he always instilled some sort of wisdom or teaching when he was done. You know, it was, a, okay, I'm going to heal you, now go and do well, or go and sin no more, or, or whatever it was. But he approached it from that standpoint, and typically in that order. You know, it was always, almost always those three, but typically it was in that order. First was compassion. So rather than saying, if you want this medicine, you're going to have to do this for me first. Because I want you to go do this, and then I'm going to give you this medicine, because you've done what I asked you to. Now, he wasn't at all like that. He was like, here's the medicine. Now, you know, I would, I would think that you should go do this. But he was, that's the way he approached it. So um, one of the stories that I, uh, th- that I really um, like in the Bible, because it's really two stories in one, is Mark 5, 22 through 43. Um, and in this story, the synagogue leader um, named Jairus, he sought out Jesus because Jairus is, you all familiar with this, right? Yeah, so he sought out Jesus because his daughter um, was dying, and he pleaded with Jesus to um, come heal his little daughter. So the first thing Jesus did, Jesus went with him. He didn't say, look, you're a synagogue leader, and you know, if you, some of those other stories, he calls synagogue leaders some really bad names. Um, but he didn't do that. He didn't say, you know, really, you need to change what you're doing and, and go a different direction, and then I'll come back and we'll talk about your daughter. He just said, he just went with him. But then as he was going with him, this other story interweaves with it where he's walking and um, this woman who was bleeding for 12 years um, approaches him. She knows that if she can just reach out and touch him, she's going to be healed. So, you know, the, the other thing with this lady that's been bleeding for 12 years, one, she's obviously bleeding, so she's obviously got a health concern. But at that time, if you were bleeding like that, and most of you already know this, She's an outcast. She's out from, from the rest of the city. So she's got not only an emotional healing that needs to take place, but also a physical, uh, physical healing. So she reaches out and she touches him. She's healed. He doesn't, you know, and he knows what's going on. He doesn't say, wait, you know, you need to, to get, clean your act up first, and then I'm going to heal you. She's healed. And then he just simply says, who did that? And he tells her then, you know, to, to go and, um, and to do well, basically. Um, go, go in peace and, and be freed from her suffering. So he had compassion throughout that. And then he did the teaching in the end, go and, and um, be healed. And then when he heals the 12-year-old girl, um, so he, he's back on the road with Jarius and goes to her house. You know, they meet him on the way, and they say, she's already dead, you don't need to come. But he goes ahead and goes anyway. 
And he gets there, and he just touches her hand, and, and she stands, and she's, she's completely healed. And he says, you know, give her something to eat and stay quiet about this. Again, he doesn't want the benefit. So when we go back to the top here, it's all about compassion, others-focused, and then instill some sort of wisdom and teaching. If we approach ethical situations like that, I think a lot of the time we're going to do very well. Some other considerations. Um, this comes from a position paper from the American College of, of Physicians. Um, so they had five points that they felt was important for physicians that are going out on short-term missions. This first one is primary obligation is to improve the health and well-being of the individuals and communities they visit. So ethically, they believe and have put out their paper that that should be the primary obligation is to improve the health and well-being of the communities that are visited. Now, that can happen in a lot of ways. It can happen one-on-one. It can happen from that root cause problem and fixing the root cause. Um, So a couple different ways that can happen. Second, justice requires partnering with local leaders to ensure that potential burdens participants can place on local communities are minimized. So, again, if, if missionaries are going out and there's already some health care established there, you know, go and partner with those folks, but don't come in and set up completely differently from them. That's, that's basically what this is saying. Don't compete with the local people. Um, work alongside them. Respect for persons is essential to short-term global uh, medical experiences. So that autonomy. You know, we should respect those that we're going to treat and work with, have informed decisions. Don't just go and tell them that this is what you're going to do for them. Um, get them involved. Pre-departure preparation should incorporate preparation for logistical and ethical aspects of short-term uh, medical service, including the potential for ethical challenges and moral distress. So, you guys are ahead of the game already. You're here listening to ethics, right? So you're already doing this point. Um, and again, there's that moral distress um, issue again uh, that, that can have to be dealt with. And then lastly, um, physicians should participate with organizations whose service are consistent with ethics and professionalism uh, as exemplified in these positions. So that's kind of their wrap-up. So they're saying, you know, we've got these four things that we think are important. Now, make sure that you work with someone who believes these four things are important. So that's what, what the position paper is from uh, American College of Physicians. Um, some other uh, points, uh, and this, these come from um, Dr. Dave Stevens, uh, who used to uh, be the CEO of CMDA. In his book, Beyond Medicine, uh, he recommends these things. Predominantly, these are recommended for, when he wrote the book, for long-term missionaries. But I think they're also... Um, really good advice for those who are serving in short-term missions. One is always defer to someone with more knowledge and expertise if you have that option available. If you're a surgeon and you're going out and um, you have a patient come in that needs a surgery that you haven't done before, find someone that has that experience if, if you can uh, and, and seek their advice. Second, consider the consequences of inaction. We talked about that a few minutes ago. So inaction is possibly always a choice. So consider that. When you're looking at the um, course of action, consider not doing anything possibly. Third, evaluate the risk and benefits of each possible outcome. Uh, Because, again, there's always risks and benefits with each scenario. Sometimes you may have to do a really quick risk-benefit analysis. But to the extent that you can go through that risk-benefit analysis, at least even quickly, you're going to come out with with a better outcome. And then lastly, uh, the principle of non-maleficence mandates that you seek change. And the change could be in your own behaviors. So if you face, um, let's say you face a certain disease state that is prevalent in the population that you're serving and you don't know how to treat it, rather than turning those patients away, go learn how to treat that disease state so that you can treat them because you're going to be impacted by that a lot. So sometimes um, you have to seek change so that, there's not a, a, an issue with that do, um, uh, do no harm. All right, to this point, we've looked at some of the ethical theories and some of the recommendations. Um, when I was putting this talk together, one of, again, as I said in the beginning, one of the things I thought would be more beneficial than just telling you what an ethical outcome would be was, was walking through that. So that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left, it looks like. So we're going to walk through two different scenarios, and I'm going to walk you through them. And then we're going to do one that, that if we have time, which hopefully we will, where, you know, it's a group interaction. So 
You know, get ready, because you all get to participate. All right. Okay, so the first one. Now, this first one actually did come to me from a friend of mine that does medical missions, and he had heard of this actually happening in the field. So the ethical consideration is require Bible study before treatment. So I think that's an ethical consideration to think about. Um, so the primary stakeholders. So uh, now, granted, I, I kept it kind of slim so it wouldn't take up a whole lot of slides, but the basics are there. So the primary stakeholders, I think, are the medical professionals and the patient. So those are the ones that are directly involved in this situation. Um, the secondary would be patient's family, the community, and the clinic staff. So you know, the clinic staff is certainly involved. They're watching what happens, and they're involved what happen, in what happens. So I think they are um, certainly a secondary stakeholder. So the next step is what are the possible courses of action? So I think there's, there's three. Certainly there could be more, but I think there's three that are pretty obvious. One, allow treatment without Bible study. So the patient just comes in, you give them the treatment, and they go out. And that's it. Nothing else. Uh, another choice would be allow treatment with Bible study offered afterwards. So they come in, they get their treatment. You tell them, we've got Bible study available over here if you'd like to participate. So that's another option. And then the third option is require Bible study before treatment. And when they say require Bible study before treatment, they mean it. If you don't participate in Bible study, you don't get treated. You're, you know, you're just dismissed from the clinic. So those are the, those are the three different options. All right, so let's talk about the risk and benefits of each course of action. So in the first course of action, which is allow treatment, so this is, is basically is allowing treatment um, just in general or allowing treatment with Bible study offered afterwards. So benefit is the patient gets treatment and has some uh, at least assumed improvement in the quality of their health. Uh, the provider gets to practice medicine and utilizes their knowledge. So, you know, that's why people go serve is they have a knowledge that someone local may not have. So you want to be able to utilize that. If you allow treatment, then, then you get to use that, um, use that knowledge. Um, the benefits of requiring the Bible study before treatment would be the patient um, has an introduction or at least further understanding of the gospel. Uh, so, you know, that's clearly we all know. Um, that's a benefit is to, to have been introduced to the gospel. Is it enough of a benefit that you want to require that before treatment? You know, we'll, so we'll walk through that. Um, the provider has the benefit of knowing they shared the gospel. You know, prim, the primary stakeholder, if that's why you went on mission, was to share the gospel. That is going to be a benefit, is that you had the opportunity to do one of the things that you went to do because you felt them knowing Christ was so important that you wanted to be sure to share that. Harms. So harm in allowing treatment is kind of just the opposite. Patient may never receive knowledge of the gospel. You know, that's that's going to be a harm. Uh, other require study. So if you require study, the harm could be that the patient may not receive the treatment or the treatment may be delayed. So if it's a patient that needs treatment fairly quickly and you're going to say, no, you're going to Bible study before you get treatment, then that could delay. If they're one that says, you know, I don't want to hear the gospel, I just came for treatment, then they're not getting any treatment at all, and so, so they're out the door. So there's more risks and, and benefits, um, certainly, but those are, are just kind of a, a couple of the primary ones. Um, and then which course of action treats all stakeholders equally, unless there's a morally justifiable reason not to? I don't think any of them treat everyone equally. Um, and typically that's going to be the answer most of the time, but it needs to be part of the quick evaluation when you're walking through that. All right, so... As we walk through this, um, let's look at each one of these ethical theories that we've talked about. So deontology, remember, uh, is going to be the first one. Um, deontology looks at the duties owed to others to protect rights. So if you look at the three courses of action, um, I think deontology, when you're looking at duties, would say provide treatment before the Bible study. So give them the treatment and then offer the Bible study so that everybody, it's kind of a win-win. They get to hear about the gospel but they get the treatment that's needed. You know, quite frankly, in this situation, I would think if somebody has to hear the gospel before they go get treated, they're probably not really focused on what they're being taught because they're worried about being treated. That's a whole other side thing, right? But that would be the situation. Autonomy. Uh, again, I think provide treatment before Bible study. If we're going to, to, to treat the patient as their own decision maker, we're going to allow them that choice of do they want to hear the gospel or do they not. Uh, we're not going to force it on them, but we're also not going to completely withhold it from them. We're going to give them some options and allow them to be part of this decision-making process. 
Uh, beneficence. So beneficence, is, uh, remember, is to do good. I think either. Either one would be good. The final outcome on either situation is good, right? Because there were benefits on both sides. So it's good to have heard the gospel and to have a relationship with Jesus. It's good to receive health care. So I think it could fall down on either side if you're looking at beneficence only. Non-maleficence. So do no harm. Again, there's pros and cons on both these. So I think it could be either. Now, some of you may argue with me, and that's fine. I think that's the other thing about ethics. You can have two different opinions on a single ethical theory. I'm going to look at it one way. You all may look at it a different way. Um, but that's why we, we go through an analysis and look at several different things and don't just pick one. So non-maleficence, I, I think either could, could work. Justice, again, I think it could be either. Um, you know, If we're looking at justice, um, we're looking at, at what's right and, and what's correct and what's honest. Um, I think it's honest to, enter, to, to offer the gospel because you're telling them that up front. Now, it wouldn't be honest to bring them in and say, well, we're going to provide you treatment. Um, just you know, go ahead and get in line and then take them over and say, okay, but actually we're going to share the gospel first. So you, know, so you want to be honest uh, with them in, in the first place. But I think in this situation, either. Consequentialism, uh, I think, is a little difficult to value, evaluate. This is looking at the outcome only and not focusing at intent. Um, so this one is, uh, consequentialism is a little bit different, uh, more difficult to evaluate. I think, uh, what would Jesus do? I think he'd provide treatment and then share the Bible study. Is if you're looking at the, the way he processed through things, first was compassion. And it's, um, so he would do the healing first and then he would go through the teaching and do the other things. So I, my opinion is he would provide treatment uh, and, and then share the Bible study. And so I think in the end... Um, when you look at these, more of the evaluation says provide treatment before Bible study and then move forward. Again, there could be different courses of action that if you were in the field and you were take, taking your time analyzing these things, you may come up with, with a different situation. All right, so let's look at another one. This one, uh, yes, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and clearly, you know, any of these ethical um, considerations have to be um, culturally appropriate as well. Where the culture that you're in, you have to take those into consideration. As a as a general um, evaluation, I'm just trying to walk through it. But yeah, again, you, you could certainly you know, be absolutely right. Yeah, thank you. All right, so the next one is uh, a surgeon performs a procedure they are not skilled at performing. Okay, so this would be um, an example of, let's say, a, a surgeon um, is a, um, he does hips and knees, and he wants to do ear reconstruction. Okay? You know, now if it's, if it's a hip and knee guy and he wants to do an, something with an ankle, you know, that could be a little more close. He may not be completely skilled, but at least it's within his skill set potentially. Um, but let's think about this would be a hip and knee guy, and he's going to do an ear reconstruction probably quite a way outside of, of, of his field. Um, so the primary stakeholders, medical professionals, again, and the patient. Um, there could be other primary, but I think those are the main ones. Um, similar to the last one, also clinic personnel, surgical support staff, patient's family, the community. So all of those who are um, affected in some way by the decisions that are made by these primary stakeholders. I think there's uh, three possible courses of action. One is perform the surgery. So this surgeon's going to go ahead and do the ear reconstruction. Uh, another one is attempt to find a qualified surgeon to perform the surgery. So not do it. You know, go out and find someone who is skilled. That's um, following kind of what Dave Stevens said. And then the third one is not perform the surgery. Um, so, you, so there's also that situation. Now, what we don't know um, from this is, and so I guess with my example, we do kind of know an ear reconstruction isn't urgent or emergent. So 
in some situations, you're going to have uh, someone who's going to act outside of the, their own skill set, and it's going to be potentially either an urgent or emergent situation. That's going to be a different analysis than when you just have time to go out and seek someone else. Maybe you still there's someone close by and you can still seek their information, uh, even in an urgent or emergent situation. If you can, you should you know person should do that. But um, that's not really part of, of, of this scenario. All right. So those are the three courses of action. Again, perform the surgery, attempt to find someone qualified, or not perform. So let's look at the risk and benefits of each of those. Uh, three. So a benefit of performing the surgery would be that the patient may have access to needed medical care. The surgeon gains experience in a procedure they're not skilled at. So that second one, the surgeon gains experience, you know, it's a benefit. You have to kind of weigh how much of a benefit that ultimately is. Um, in an attempt to find a skilled surgeon, the patient receives better care and has a better likelihood of an outcome. And then the benefit in the third one, um, did not perform the surgery, the patient doesn't have the risk of a bad outcome. So I think that is a, a benefit. You know, we talked about inaction as being one of the possibilities. So there's an example of that. Don't perform the surgery, that's inaction. The patient may have a really good outcome by not um, having some, some further risk. Some of the harms, um, perform the surgery, the patient may have a negative outcome. Uh, the community may be reluctant to receive care due to negative outcomes. So if you know, the community sees the bad outcome this one patient got. They may not want to go because they don't want to risk that same outcome. Staff and surgery personnel may have some personal negative feelings regarding um, how this whole thing happened. Uh, attempt to find a skilled surgeon. So it could delay. Uh, that delay that's there could cause some other harm to the patient uh, down the road. And then uh, the other one is do not perform the surgery. So the patient doesn't have the opportunity for improved health. If there's no inaction, certainly they don't risk um, having any further problem, but also they don't have the potential benefit of getting better. And then the surgeon doesn't gain any experience in, um, in the surgery that they would have been performing. Again, which course of action treats them all the same? I don't think any of those do. All right, so let's walk through uh, the, the different ones again like we did on, on the last scenario. So with deontology, we're looking at the duties that are owed. Uh, I would say... Of the three, try to find a skilled surgeon or not perform the surgery. So if it's a duty and this surgeon is not skilled in that, um, the best choice is to find a skilled surgeon or to not perform the surgery. For autonomy, you know, this is the patient deciding. I mean, how many, how many times when this happens in the field where somebody does something that they don't necessarily know how to do, do you think they tell the patient, look, you're going to be my first one. Uh, I've never done this ear reconstruction before, but I'm excited about this. You know, no, they, they're not, they don't do that kind of disclosure. I don't think they do. I could be wrong. I doubt that they do that kind of disclosure. And so if you don't, it's truly not patient autonomy. If you're in a U.S. hospital and a doc is going to perform a procedure he's never done before, you know, you're going to be signing a lot of papers. So um, just think, think along those lines. For beneficence, um, so to do good, try to find a skilled surgeon. Because you've got to do, you need to do something that's positive. Um, so you need to, so that's why the, you would try to find a skilled surgeon. For non-maleficence, try to find a skilled surgeon or not perform the surgery. For justice, same thing. Consequentialism, perform the surgery. Um, or try to find a skilled surgeon. So that one's different. And again, the reason is it's the outcome. So we're wholly outcome-focused on consequentialism. So with that one, it's perform the surgery because the outcome of getting the procedure done is what is most important. It's not what happens along the way, whether or not this person knows what they're doing, really. It's the outcome. And then uh, what would Jesus do? I think try to find a skilled surgeon. I think he'd try really hard. He would search long and hard, as quick as he could, to find somebody who could do good and help that person uh, that he's working with. He was a good surgeon for Peter. He was, yeah. Good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've got about uh, just a little under 10 minutes left, so let's walk through this again. So this was that list that I showed earlier, so we're coming back to this. So is there anything on here that you guys would like to see us walk through? Or does somebody else have a different scenario that they would, uh, that they would like to see us walk through? I'll stand up here for the next nine minutes. Working with local practitioners. 
What? Oh, competing with local practitioners. Yeah, okay. So let's just say working um, or competing with local practitioners. So you're going to go in that situation, you're going to go into um, whatever uh, community you're going into. There's already local practitioners that are set up. They're already conducting their own clinics. And, um, and uh, they're showing me 10 minutes back there. That's why. Um, so you're going to go in, but you're going to set up your own clinic that's going to be in competition with them. Okay? So that's the scenario that we're going to work through. All right, so first, who are the stakeholders? Who do you think the stakeholders are? Okay, patients. Who else? The local practitioners. Okay, so those that you're competing with. Um, the, the people that are going in. So they're all, um, they're all stakeholder, uh, primary stakeholders as well. So those are probably the three primary. Uh, there may be more, but just quickly, those are the three. Any secondary stakeholders? Community. Okay, the community is secondary. Anybody else? Sponsors. Okay, so the people that are sending the missionaries that are going. No? Not just them, but the local church. The local church, okay. I'm thinking of Yeah, okay. Somebody else had something. Also the senders. The senders, okay. All right, so we've got some primary, we've got some secondary. Again, there may, there may be more. All right, so what are the possible courses of action? So you're competing. So these are missionaries that are competing with local um, practitioners. What are courses of action that could be taken? Collaborate. Collaborate. Okay, so work together. What's something else? They evaluate the care that's available compared to the care that you can give. Okay, so so you're saying go in and see what's going on in that community, and if you're going to go, so your suggestion then would be is if you're going to go in and do a better job than what they're doing, go ahead and go forward with your clinic. Is that right? Okay, so I'll just say move forward with your clinic. So that's going to be, a, and then we'll risk and benefit. We'll use that in the risk and benefit, okay? Um, so any other courses of action that you could take? Yeah, don't compete with them. So probably the three, collaborate, compete, don't compete, okay? So then if we look at the risk and benefits of each one, so what are some of the, the benefits of, of uh, competing? So you mentioned one, may provide better care. Um, what's another benefit of competing? Providing care that they may not be able to pay for with the existing Okay. Yeah, okay. So that's another benefit. Um, any other benefits of, of competing? They may hear the gospel. They could hear the gospel, okay. The sender and the church will be happy. <laughs> yeah. They get what they paid for. All right. Um, how about collaboration? What are some benefits of collaboration? Empowerment. Yeah, I was going to say teaching. So you, you, the one could teach the other, and it could go both ways because there's certainly teaching both ways. Any other benefits of collaboration? Post op. Yeah, because there's somebody there for follow up. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. No matter whether it's surgical or non-surgical, yeah, there's somebody there for follow up. All right, any, any other benefits right off for, um, for collaborating? All right, how about benefits for not competing? Well, you don't disrupt the local economy. Anything else? Okay. All right, real quickly, how about risks? So risks of competing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, de- devaluing the local providers. Very true. Yeah. Because they want to go somewhere where they can work. Yeah. Okay. Any any risk of compete? Um, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, another risk. All right, any risk of collaborating? Yeah. Just difficulty communicating and, and not stepping on each other's toes. Okay. Yeah, so possibly some of that autonomy stuff with the patient in the end, too, if you can't, can't communicate. All right, anything else? There's still competition with collaboration. What's that? There's always still some competition with collaboration. Oh, yeah, possibly, yeah. 
All right, how about any risks of, what are we on, not competing? Okay. So if you don't compete, they don't get the care. Yeah, that's right. Um, Because that was one of our benefits, is that they may get care that they wouldn't otherwise get if the local practitioners don't, aren't able to provide that. Yeah, so don't get the care. Any other um, risks? Okay. Yeah, so that that would probably be more of a risk of not collaborating, though, because in that collaboration you're probably sharing information, but that's a great point. Yeah, so that you're not, not sharing information and, and teaching. Okay. All right, so which course of action treats all stakeholders equally unless there's a morally justifiable reason not to? I, I don't – right off, I don't think there is in this. So let's quickly walk through these. So deontology, duty owed to others. What do you think – what would be your choice – for the three different options, compete, collaborate, and don't compete. For, for when you owe a duty to protect others' rights, what, where does this one come down? Collaborate. How many say collaborate? Okay, so I'd say most of the room. All right. How about uh, autonomy, the patient's ability to decide? Which of the three? Compete? Is that what I heard? So you think compete would um, give the patients better ability to decide? How many agree with compete? A little bit. How many say collaborate? A few of you. How about don't compete? Okay, nobody don't. So either collaborate or compete. All right, how about uh, do good or do well? Which of the three? All right, how many say compete? One. How many say collaborate? How many say don't compete? Okay. I'd say from those who decided to play along, it was, don't, it was collaborate. All right. Do no harm. What do you think? Compete? Collaborate? Don't compete. Don't, so collaborate or don't compete was about even. Um, justice, what is reasonable, correct, and honest? Compete? Collaborate? Don't compete. Some collaborate. And then consequentialism, what is the consequence of the outcome? Intent is not considered. So it's just what's the, what is the best outcome without worrying about anything else along the way. Compete. Collaborate. Don't compete. So again, it was between compete and collaborate on that one. And then what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What would Jesus Okay, so what do you say? Compete? Collaborate? Don't compete. So collaborate. So you guys just answered this ethical question of if you go in where someone else and you're competing with local practitioners, don't do it. Go in and try to work alongside them and help lift them up in what their knowledge base is and um, provide better care for the patient in the end because they have access to care that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And then you're also um, helping that practitioner maybe increase their own patient base because patients may come to them hoping that you'll come back and and work alongside them again. So collaborate is the best outcome. All right. Um, Yes? If they're unwilling to collaborate, is it right to still go forward and compete there? I can't. That's not a question I can answer. I told you that in the beginning. No. I don't know because each situation is different. You know, if it's, let's say there's a practitioner there, but they're absolutely horrible and people are dying in that community because they can't get care. And they're really not practicing well anyway. Maybe go. But, you know, it, every situation is going to be so different. You, you really have to know the community and know what you're walking into to make that decision, I think. we got about one more minute. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. That's a whole ethical issue on its own, yeah. Right now, but we've been between a city and where there is a hospital is a doctor um, and out in the village. Out in the village, 10, 15, 20 miles, if we get to another one, they're just walking, so they spend all day to get there and Mm -hmm. whatever. So what we've done is we take care of what we can take care of, long-term stuff, we send them back, and if we can't take care of what they're doing, we go to the local protection. We get yeah. to the hospital. 
we so that we're not we keep saying we're there short term. We can't help you manage your long term stuff. You've yeah. got to go back. You've got to stay connected with your local doctors, however. Yeah. And we, the church has helped get them there and do that and do it. So yeah. So that collaboration. So that's you know that's another. Yeah. You know that's another point that some people really see a, an ethical concern about is if you're going to go in on a short term, you know nobody else is going to be there for six months to a year. You know how do you deal with that? Um, you know and that's that's a consideration to think about. Do you just treat um, what you can take care of, like um, infections that you know you can with what you're leaving? Do you go ahead and start them on an antidiabetic? You know, different people have different views, so we're not going to, we're not going <laughs> she's got a view, um, so we're not going to, you know, get into that. But, um, you know, those are ethical considerations that, that routinely come up. So thank you guys for participating and helping walk through that last one.